guys. I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the podcast, you can show your support via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or follow the link under the contribute tab at wordsforgranted.com. Every little bit adds up, really. For just a buck or two a month, which is less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. The latest contributors-only bonus episode explores why certain animal words, such as deer, sheep, and fish, are the same in both their singular and plural forms. In addition to the bonus episodes, you also get to walk away knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent show. Thanks to Jen and Tiffany for their recent contributions. All right, let's get on to today's episode, part five in a series on the evolution of grammar. Each and every one of us has our own unique point of view. That sounds more like the start of an inspirational self-help podcast than a linguistics podcast, but stick with me here. I will eventually tie this into the evolution of English grammar. So we all have our own unique points of view, and in order to express those points of view, whether we're writing a philosophical manifesto or explaining to our neighbor how to take care of our cat while we're away on vacation, we rely on language. In spite of the claim with which I kicked the episode off, the meanings of words are not based on our individual points of view, but rather our collective points of view. Let me elaborate on exactly what I mean by that. I hate onions, but there's nothing about the word onion that expresses my personal and subjective dislike toward them. Nor should there be. It's not like I have ownership of the word onion. It's everybody's word, and there's nothing inherently bad about onions. I just happen not to like them, and my personal preferences are of absolutely no concern to the English language at large. As far as the English language at large is concerned, an onion is just an edible bulb-like thing that grows under the ground. End of story. Onion is a qualitatively neutral word because it refers to an objective thing in the world, not to our subjective experiences of it. To put this more straightforwardly, the word onion didn't evolve with my point of view in mind, so it doesn't have a negative connotation. It also didn't evolve with the point of view of an onion lover in mind, so it doesn't have a positive connotation either. The word onion has no subjective connotation at all. Again, this is because words are the product of collective points of view. However, there's an evolutionary trend in linguistics that indicates that some words have evolved with my point of view in mind. Yes, me, Ray Belli, host of Words for Granted. You might think that that's crazy, but wait, it gets crazier. This trend also indicates that these same words have evolved with your point of view in mind. Not in abstract you, but specifically you, the person listening to this right now. This process is called subjectification, and before I start receiving emails about how I've lost my mind, let me explain what the heck it is and how it works. 
Subjectification is the evolutionary process by which a word acquires a meaning that reflects the attitudes, beliefs, or viewpoints of the particular person using it. Perhaps the most often cited example of subjectification in English is the evolution of the word very. Very derives from a word meaning true, factual, or real, but nowadays, very is mostly a word used for emphasis, that is, emphasis according to your point of view. We'll return to a more detailed analysis of its etymology in just a second, but for now, let's just use the word very as a general case study. In the sentence, my coffee is very hot, the word very indicates that, on a scale of heat from 1 to 10, that coffee is somewhere between 8 and 10. However, my scale for what is hot and your scale for what is hot may or may not be similar, so my 8 may be more like your 6, thus rendering my very hot coffee just hot coffee, according to you and your point of view. The word very is inherently vague because it doesn't adhere to an objective scale, and by definition, it's not supposed to. Semantically, the very purpose of very is to emphasize the subjective point of view of whoever speaks it. Grammatically, these kinds of words used for emphasis are classified as intensifiers. I would argue that very is not only a product of subjectification, but also of grammaticalization. Grammaticalization is defined as the process by which words representing objects or actions evolve into grammatical markers. Intensifiers aren't strict grammatical markers in the same sense that prefixes and suffixes are, but they are, in fact, the only grammatical option we have for succinctly emphasizing a particular word without having to further elaborate on it. Other languages have different ways of going about this. For instance, many North Indian languages will repeat a word twice for emphasis, connecting the two with a dash when written down. In Hindi, jaldi jaldi literally means quickly quickly, but in English we would translate that as very quickly, because quickly quickly isn't grammatically correct. We have some instances of idiomatic emphatic repetition in English, such as again and again and over and over, but in general, emphatic duplication is not a legitimate aspect of our grammar. Languages such as Tagalog, Turkish, and Persian, among others, also have this convention of emphatic reduplication. That was a bit of a digression, but hopefully looking at just one of the ways that some non-English languages express subjective emphasis without using intensifiers helps put the uniquely grammatical function of intensifiers into better perspective. Now, if very had always been an intensifier over the course of its entire existence, its status as an intensifier wouldn't be that interesting. But like I already said, this isn't the case. Very ultimately derives from the Latin word verus, which meant true, real, or actual. Verus passed into French as verai, which also meant true, real, or actual, and verai passed into English as vere, which, yes, also originally meant true, real, or actual. This sense of the word is still preserved in the cognate verify, which means to check if something is true. 
This meaning of true has also survived in the word very itself, but in a small way. In the sentence, I'm going to build a house with my very hands, very is not being used for subjective emphasis, a la my coffee is very hot. My very hands means my actual hands. It's kind of being used for emphasis, but it's emphasizing the objective actuality of my hands. I said that this sense has survived in a small way because this usage, although certainly still around, isn't exactly common, and it's often used for an overly dramatic effect. Given the truth-oriented semantic history of the word very, its current role as a part of speech used to emphasize the subjectivity of the speaker using it is a bit ironic. Ironic or inevitable? As it turns out, very is not the only English word with a truth-oriented semantic history whose meaning has been subjectified over time. The word real, which is probably the most basic word used to refer to something that is objectively true, leads a double life as a subjective intensifier as well, especially in the United States. The sentence, my coffee is real hot, is an even more colloquial way of saying, my coffee is very hot. Like very, real implies somewhere between 8 and 10 on that heat scale, according to me, yet that heat scale is not real to anyone that doesn't live inside of my head. While the usage of real as an intensifier isn't universally accepted, the usage of the word really as an intensifier is certainly undisputed. In fact, really, which is just the adjectival form of real, is almost exclusively used as an intensifier. When I say my coffee is really hot, I'm using really to, yet again, express that range between 8 and 10 on my heat scale. I'm not using it to say, yes, the hotness of my coffee is real, as opposed to not real. Really could be used in this way, but this usage usually requires a bit of context, such as a third party doubting that my coffee is indeed hot. For example, if you said, I don't believe that your coffee is hot, and I replied, no, it really is, in this context, really is objectively referring to what is real as opposed to what is not real. If you're wondering about the etymology of real, it comes from the Latin word res, which means thing. It passed into English via the French word rail, which also meant thing. Even though very and really have been used as intensifiers since the 15th and 17th centuries respectively, the grammaticalization of intensifiers via subjectification is by no means a thing of the past. There's a modern English word that's often used as an intensifier, whose subjectification is the source of some controversy. If you read the full title of this episode, you probably already know that the word I'm talking about is literally. People literally use literally to describe literally anything even if it's not literally true. Those damn kids are ruining the language. Well, yes, people do use literally to describe literally anything, and this literally has increased in recent years, but it's not the kids who are ruining the language. As it turns out, the subjective and hyperbolic sense of literally has been around for a long time. The earliest recorded usage of it dates back to the 18th century, and some of the English language's most revered writers, including James Joyce, F. Scott Fitzgerald, 
and Charles Dickens have all used it in this way. So blame the greats, not your next door neighbor's teenage daughter. Besides, the lit in literally is cognate with the lit in literature and the word letter. Literally originally referred to things that were literally written down, but no one seems to complain that this literal sense of the word has died out. I have a sneaking suspicion that it's because the original sense of the word was lost so long ago that most people don't know it was ever lost at all. Language changes, and it's okay. That's what this whole podcast is about. I should note that not all intensifiers are byproducts of subjectification, and the process of subjectification does not always result in intensifiers. The main focus of this episode has been on the grammatical category of subjectified intensifiers because this episode is technically part of the grammar miniseries that I'm doing, but for the sake of a fuller understanding of the process of subjectification, let's look at an example that doesn't involve an intensifier. How about the word evidently? Evidently literally means according to evidence, and historically it was used in this very strict sense. But in the 20th century, it began being used as a word to confirm one's biases without necessarily citing evidence. A similar evolution has taken place in the word apparently. Apparently originally meant clearly or visibly, a meaning still relevant to its cognate appear, but now apparently just means seemingly. Just because something seems a certain way to the subjective point of view of a particular individual doesn't mean that that thing is clear or visible to anyone else, hence the subjectification of the word. I'm certainly guilty of using this one a lot. Hopefully, these real-world examples have helped you understand the basic premise of subjectification and how it works. For the rest of this episode, I want to talk about this phenomenon in a broad sense. In the field of linguistics, subjectification is a noteworthy process because it is not unique to English. It happens in unrelated languages around the world. The bottom line is that we're all just a bunch of egomaniacs and we're inclined to make everything about ourselves. Just kidding. Sort of. From a cognitive linguistic perspective, this is actually what subjectification implies. Subjectification is also noteworthy because it's unidirectional. In other words, over time, words become more subjective, but they don't become more objective. Linguistic subjectification is a one-way street, which explains why there isn't a related phenomenon called objectification. In spite of this, I can think of at least one English word that has driven the opposite direction down this one-way street. That word is gay. Gay originally meant happy, which of course is a subjective state experienced differently by different people, yet it evolved to mean homosexual, which is an objective description of someone with a sexual preference for the same sex. This would be a case of linguistic objectification, but just because one word evolves in a certain way doesn't mean that it warrants an entirely new category of classification. Like I said, this example is just one exception amidst a well-documented trend. When linguistic subjectification was first being studied in the 1990s, mainly by British linguist Elizabeth Trogott, 
Its universality across languages and unidirectionality were seen as a major breakthrough in the study of semantic change. You see, prior to this point, semantic change wasn't considered a scientific study by linguists because it lacked regularity. But with these discoveries, some scientifically predictable claims could be made about the semantic evolution of words. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you know that semantic change can indeed be an anything-goes kind of affair. But amidst this free-for-all, subjectification at least can tell us the likely direction the free-for-all is moving in. This episode just scratches the surface of subjectification. For those who would like to read more about this topic, I've posted a few links to academic papers in the show notes and on my website. Usually, I don't recommend further reading on this podcast, mostly because I literally tell you everything I find over the course of my research. You see what I did there? Literally? But this time around, the deeper aspects of the topic of subjectification are just not user-friendly. It's frankly PhD-level stuff that assumes a working knowledge of formal linguistics study, particularly the study of cognitive linguistics. But for those of you who want to take a crack at it, by all means, follow those links, and you can email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com with any questions. All right, that's it for this one, guys. If you love the show, again, I'd like to remind you that you can sign up to show your support at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. If that's not in your budget, you can always just leave a review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, or your podcast directory of choice. Or you can just tell a friend about the show. I'm on Twitter at, at @wordsforgranted and Facebook as Words for Granted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at, again, wordsforgranted at gmail.com. See you next time, guys. Have a great day. <laughs>